Amen. Man, I am so thankful for a church family that sends people out into the harvest. I'm thankful for those who carry the gospel either through disaster relief or as missionaries and go out and share the gospel with others. What an amazing opportunity. And it happens right here in our midst and, and we get to be a part of that. And I'm just so thankful for, to God for allowing us to, to see that and to be a part of his kingdom work around the world. Um, this morning, I, wanna, I want us to, uh, i got a long ways to go and a short time to get there, so uh, I'll, I'll speak fast and you listen fast, okay? But um, the, uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to talk about anger. And uh, I know uh, sometimes we don't, we don't necessarily like to think about that, but we need to think about that. You know, I, he- I heard about a preacher one time who was preaching at a conference, and uh, He got up in front of everybody and he said this. He said, praise God, I haven't sinned in 21 years. And uh, someone in the front row said, I think I'd like to ask his wife about that. (laughs) You know, it's, uh, I think that's huge because Jesus, he recognized that we cannot be trusted in our treatment and judgment of the seriousness of careless speech. The things that we say. Mark my words, I'm also talking about the things we type. Because they come from you. They come from me. So whether we're talking about typing something on Facebook or on the internet or anywhere else, or whether we're saying that with our speech, with our tongues, I'm talking about the things that come from our heart. See, we treat the damage we do with our lips towards others very lightly because we don't see the corpses, the dead bodies that we leave behind. So we say these things flippantly, we, we just let this outburst go all out there, just lay it out there for everybody to see, and we never realize that we are going to give an account for what we have said, the careless speech that we've said. That's why Jesus, in his Sermon on the, the Mount, he invades our moral slumber By telling us how serious it is in the sight of God. And he uses language that we readily understand. Anger incurs judgment. Anger incurs judgment and uses terms like contempt. The word raka is worthy of condemnation by the highest court. Calling someone else a fool fits us for hell. Jesus' words, not mine. See, he is not placing these sins on a scale of seriousness in the kingdom of God. But he's stressing that it is far more serious than most of us assume. Like, we'll say something, and once we let it go, we're done with it. We don't even think about it again. But the damage has already been done. See, in fact, our insensitivity to the real seriousness of our sin reveals the dullness of our spiritual senses. We're so dulled down that we don't even get it. 
We don't see the, the, the fact that our, our sin is so serious. In Matthew chapter 5, I want to read a few verses here. Verse 21 uh, through 26. And if you have your scripture and would follow along. I don't think Monica was talking about me holding my Bible like this. But she was talking about me holding my Bible like the sword of the word of God. Got to hang on to that. Verse 21, chapter 5 of Matthew says this. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Verse 25, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Loving Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit even now would just reveal to us the truth of your word. Father, that your Holy Spirit would convict our hearts. Father, that we would see where we fall short of your glory. And Father, that you would help us to just to love you more, to love one another more, Father, and to serve you. Lord, we are so thankful for all that you do for us. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, if we read from, we're reading in Matthew chapter 5, his Sermon on the Mount. If you look at verse 16, this kind of puts the, the backdrop for this. Verse 16 says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. In verse 20, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. See, it follows what, what, what comes after those two statements, okay, is there's six segments here where Jesus is, is breaking down the law and saying, this is what this means, okay? And, and he takes it in six different segments. This morning we're looking at the first one, and there's at least a twofold purpose in each one of these segments. And they are, number one, to teach what righteousness looks like that surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. So Jesus is saying, you know, what does it take to, to surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? I'm going to show you what it looks like. Here's what it looks like. And then also to describe the righteousness when lived out in the power of the Spirit that gives a proper opinion to the people I meet about who our Father is. Let your light shine before men so that they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. So not only to teach us what righteousness looks like that surpasses the scribes and Pharisees, but also that kind of righteousness which gives a proper opinion of our Heavenly Father to the people that we meet. See, the Jewish leaders up to this time, up to this point, had taught nothing um, 
except actual murder was forbidden in the sixth commandment. So they explained away kind of the spiritual meaning of you shall not murder. And Christ showed the full meaning of this commandment according to which we must be judged after this life, in the life to come, we we will be judged by this, so therefore we ought to be implementing it now. We're going to be held to this standard of righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. So, so really, when we look at this, all rash anger, all thoughtless anger, all careless anger, all foolish anger, all impulsive anger is heart anger. It's heart murder. Think of it in those terms, heart murder. See, we should all take a close look at our inner rage, the things that makes our blood boil, the things that really chap our hides. See, we might think we can control it, but unfortunately, though, our feelings of hostility often control us and they cause us to do things we would never do when we were thinking clearly. You go from zero to rage in nothing flat. We think we control it. See, that's why unresolved anger needs to be looked at as a time bomb that can explode. Destroying ourselves, destroying, doing irreparable damage to others and those around us. Now true, not all anger is wrong. But all wrong anger needs to be acknowledged and confessed before it leads to murder. See, ask yourself in each case this question. Do my attitudes and actions in this area of my life, do they give others I meet a proper opinion of who my Father in heaven, who he really is? Do our actions reflect who he is? I mean, it's a fair question. See, it's interesting to me that Jesus begins um, not very far into his Sermon on the Mount with an emphasis on the sanctity of life, on the sacredness of life. You shall not commit murder. See, the call on kingdom citizens is that we do all that we can to honor that sanctity, that we do all that we can to honor life. You see, every life matters. I don't care what size it is. I don't care what color it is. Every life matters. And I would say to each one of you today, looking you in the eye, I would tell you that abortion is murder. It's murder. It's taking of a life. All human life is sacred. And we are made in the image of Almighty God. Scripture tells us that we have a creator. And as as our creator, we are accountable to him. Not only for the things we do, but the things that we say. The things that we think. Even those things we don't do. Now, you know, a newspaper reported a tragic incident of violence that took place in South America. And and there was a peasant there. He killed his best friend while they were arguing over some political differences. 
And this is what he said. When asked why he did it, he replied with these chilling words. He said, we began peacefully. And then we argued. And I killed him when I ran out of words. We think that's senseless. But recognize, as a country, we are running out of words. See, few Christians ever have to deal with the matter of murder. But all Christians must constantly deal with the presence of anger. Adrian Rogers, he said this. He said, the anger that people have, oh, the anger. He said, you see them, you know, at the intersection. They're they're at an intersection or wherever. You get in a little traffic snarl. And all of a sudden, you see them. They just express such anger. The blood rushes to their face. And they're angry, just zero to 60 in anger. And you know that if it were not against the law, they would take someone's life. And it's sad because it is against the law. And that is the only thing keeping them from doing that. Is they know they would probably go to prison if they took a life. See, that's a sad state of affairs. And when we as believers respond in the same way that the world responds, then we got a problem. It's like the one woman, she went to her doctor and she, she was having an examination and he looked kind of serious and he was pretty grave about the situation. And she said, doctor, what's wrong? And he said, ma'am, I, I hate to tell you this, you have hydrophobia, you have rabies. She pulled a pen and paper out of her purse and she started writing stuff down and he was looking. He said, what, what are you writing down? Are, are you writing out your will? And, and she said, no, I'm writing down the names of the people I want to bite. See, anger has that effect on us. We get angry and we, we want to do something about it. And, and, you know, Jesus has something to say about anger. And he referred to the surpassing righteousness of his followers. And he realized that the law prohibited murder. But what he warned about was anger. See, anger is when we feel we have uh, what we feel when we perceive that someone, that we've been wronged by someone. We, we view it that way, that, that, that it's what we feel. And it springs from resentment over an offense or, or, or contempt for the individual. And it, it results in an adversarial relationship that has the potential to disrupt fellowship and worship alike. I mean, folks, this is why it's hard to prosecute a hate crime because we don't actually know what's in that other person's heart only God sees and knows the intents of our heart now there's a couple of misunderstandings about this passage these verses and I want you to understand this it is not saying that anger is the same thing as murder Or it's not saying that it's just as bad as murder. Now just for the record, personally, I would rather you be angry at me than do the other one. It's okay to be angry, but be angry and sin not. 
See, it's not also saying that anger itself is sin. I mean, from other passages, we know that Jesus himself was sometimes angry and that we can be angry without sinning. And it's difficult for us to practice truly holy anger or righteous indignation because our emotions are tainted by sin. They have that presence with them. And and we don't have the same knowledge that God has in all matters. So it's hard for us to be truly holy in that emotion, in that anger. But you see, God sees clearly everything. And he knows everything completely. And we don't. He has all the facts. So the New Testament principle is that the believer should be angry at sin. But be loving towards other people. See, anger is an initial, it's initially a response. I want to say, maybe not so much a choice, but over time it becomes a conditioned and reinforced response. We probably respond with anger so often because we're fallen individuals, we're fallen people. But it's not a sin in the sense of The choice that I make to disobey God. I mean when it first strikes I believe anger is more like a temptation than a sin. It's what we choose to do with the anger. It's what we choose to do because of the anger that makes it a sin. So we have the expression of of anger and we express anger in uh, one of two ways. And the The one expression, the first expression I'm going to talk about is the malicious side of, of, it's the malicious act of murder. Okay, and this is, uh, the law said you shall not commit murder and it's prohibited this kind of expression. And murder is the worst expression of this emotion that we call anger. It's the worst expression of it. Jesus suggested another form, another expression of anger. He spoke about how anger can be expressed in a a silent attitude. (laughs) Generally, this silent attitude is an attitude of anger that leads to speech that is dripping with contempt. See, anger often shows up in a spousal relationship in which one spouse may demonstrate anger at the other by silence. Oh yeah, we know when you're angry. And you know when we're angry. It shows up in silence. It shows up in non-involvement. It shows up in a lack of kindness and gentleness. A disregard for showing tenderness and concern. This same thing happens in the parent-child relationship. And it can also happen in a work relationship. When anger is expressed, the slow seething of the angry person looks for ways to express animosity as much as what they don't do, as much as what they do. In other words, I'm just going to quit doing what I was doing because I'm mad at you. I'm just going to pull back and I'm not going to do, I'm not going to talk to you, I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to silently express my disapproval, my anger at what's going on. See, that's what Jesus is talking about. And then intense words such as raka or fool are expressed toward the other person. And these words and their meanings were known more to their original hearers than they are to us today. 
But let me, you know, when, when we think about this, raka is the Aramaic word that meant blockhead. You blockhead. Today we might say something like you knothead, you knucklehead. When he's talking about saying raka, that's what he's talking about. Fool, the word fool meant outcast. You're a fool, you're, you're outcast. I don't want anything to do with you. See, whatever their, their meanings, their precise meanings, these words were expressions of contempt. You know, when we talk about contempt, young person, you can have, a, have contempt for your parents. You can be disobedient. You can be disrespectful. In the court of law, when you disrespect the judge and the officers of the court, they call it contempt. The reason is because you're being disobedient, you're disrespecting who they are. But you see, that's what contempt is, is when we begin to disrespect other people and we say, well, that idiot, that knucklehead, that blockhead, that fool, what we're doing is we're showing contempt for that other person and we're diminishing our view of them in front of Almighty God. Understand that. See, he says the sin of contempt is liable for even a severer judgment. It's liable to the judgment of the Sanhedrin, the the Supreme Court of the Jews. And of course, this is not to be taken literally. But it's as if Jesus was saying this. The sin of entrenched anger is bad. The sin of contempt is worse. There's no sin quite as unchristian as the sin of contempt. I mean, you think about this. There is a contempt which comes from pride of birth <laughs> and snobbery is truly an ugly thing there's a contempt which comes from position and from money the pride in material things it's also an ugly thing there is contempt which comes from knowledge and all of all the snobberies Intellectual snobbery is probably the hardest to understand, or hardest to understand, because no wise man was ever impressed by anything other than their own ignorance. I can't believe I didn't know that. I can't believe I didn't get that. See, we should never look with contempt on another person for whom Christ died. Look at the dangers. Of anger. Jesus wanted his followers here to, to work on their inward character and, and to prevent anger from even starting. And the Lord knew the real dangers of anger. And anger can get you in trouble in human relationships. It can also get you in trouble in the court. I mean, this reference was probably to the court of the synagogue, normally where misdemeanors were handled and taken care of. The reference to the Supreme Court in verse 22, it referred to the, the 71 member Sanhedrin, the Jewish court, where serious crimes were tried. But anger can get you in trouble with human courts. <laughs> but anger poses another danger it can get one in trouble with hellfire. Jesus said that the angry person deserves human judgment both in the local and in the higher courts. The angry person deserves hell itself. 
Jesus said anger is quite serious, and he warned about those dangers. So let's explore the actions of, of, against anger. You know, when Thomas Akempis, he said this. He said, when anger enters the mind, wisdom departs. You know how irrational we get when we begin to argue and we start to get heated about it and passionate about it and we get real irrational, the things that we really think aren't coming out the way we hoped they would and we say things that we shouldn't say. You know, Jesus described action to be taken against anger and he offered two illustrations. The first one was a person who went to the temple to offer his offering, to make his offering to God. He says in verse 23, he says, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. You see, no act of worship is acceptable to God as long as the worshiper is on bad terms with his brother. No act of worship is acceptable to God when we have a problem with our brother. Folks, this should, this should tear our hearts out. Because that means that what we've done here this morning, if we've got a problem, then it, it, it means nothing to God. Because all we've done is gone through the motions. We haven't really actually been reconciled. We've not given our brother that deference. We've not forgiven him. We've harbored anger in our heart. And so the things that we've done really don't mean a whole lot to God. They may make us feel better about ourselves. But they shouldn't when there's something against our brother. See, forget the worship service. Go be reconciled to your brother. Go take care of that business. Go repent. Go make amends. Go forgive. And then come and worship a holy God. Because only then can you truly worship. See, we as people, we love to substitute ceremony. Ceremony for integrity or purity or love. But Jesus will have none of that. See, the Christian should reconcile with his or her fellow being. The second illustration that Jesus uses is a person who went to court to answer charges of an accuser. And he says there in verse 25, he says, Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. See, the illustration of the court. Jesus picks up a legal metaphor here and he, he spoke about making every attempt to reconcile with other people. And these two illustrations, the illustration from worship is dealing with a brother. And the illustration from the court is dealing with an enemy. Two different circumstances. But Jesus covers the bases. The point is the same in both of these cases. Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, should settle all animosity with other people. See, by his own authority... 
Jesus said it first. He said, you've heard it from the ancients. But I say to you, it's Jesus is underscoring the purity that points to the law. The principle is clear. Right relationships with others are part of the meaning of our commandment not to murder. Because Jesus knows that if we strictly adhere to the letter of the law, do not murder, that we're going to go around and we're going to assassinate people's character left and right. But as believers, my followers, as my, 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 you know, as my disciples, you won't do that. Leave your, leave your offering and go be reconciled to your brother. Make friends while you're on the way. Reconcile those relationships. See, if, if they're essential. If, if our righteousness is to go past that of the scribes and Pharisees who kept the letter of the law, we've got to go deeper. And it means we've got to go deeper. It's the only citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Genuine believers can obey Jesus' instructions and commands. Doing so not because there's a law against it. But doing so because the power of the Holy Spirit living within us compels us to do something more. To go a little deeper. To have the character of our Master and Lord Jesus. You see, the character of the life of His calls for this kind of commitment. It's, it's unarguable. Some people may say, well, Jesus doesn't mention the Holy Spirit in the Sermon on the Mount. You're right, he doesn't. But it's impossible to live the life that he calls us to apart from the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus said, you must be born again. Now, all of this is very instructive. I'm going to try and wrap this up quickly. It calls us loudly towards searching our own heart. What does it teach us? It teaches us, number one, the exceeding holiness of Almighty God. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. I mean, God is the the most pure, perfect being who sees faults and imperfections. He reads our inward motives He notes our words and our thoughts as well as our actions. And there is no pride. There's no room for pride or self-righteousness or carelessness if we truly see God as He is. It teaches us the exceeding ignorance of humanity in spiritual things. I mean, there are multitudes... Of professing Christians who know no more of the requirements of God's law than the most ignorant Jews. I mean, they may know the letter of the Ten Commandments. And they fancy like the rich young ruler, oh, all these things I've kept since my youth. They don't think it's possible to break the Sixth and the Seventh Commandments. By breaking them inwardly rather than outwardly. And so they live daily satisfied with themselves. And quite content with their little bit of formal religion. I just want $3 of Jesus, please. That's all I want. Just a little bit. Just enough so that everybody else will think I'm holy, but not enough to be holy myself. Not enough for it to go beyond skin deep. Just a little bit. 
I just want $3, please. But you see, it teaches us our exceeding need for our Lord Jesus Christ, atoning blood to save us. I mean, who on earth, who on earth can stand before such a holy God and claim themselves to be guilt-free? I am not guilty, God. I am not guilty of the things that, that, that you are saying that I have done. Can't do it. We can't stand on our own. Scripture tells us there is none righteous. No, not one. Without a mighty mediator like Jesus, all of us would be condemned to the judgment. And ignorance is the real meaning of the law. It is one plain reason why many do not value the gospel. Some people don't value the gospel because they don't understand God's law. They don't get it. But I submit to you this morning that we get it. And we understand it. And so we value the gospel. We value sharing the gospel with others. Because if we don't share with them, they are guilty of hellfire. They are condemned just as we were before we came to Christ. So finally, I would say this passage teaches us the exceeding importance of avoiding all occasions of sin. If we really desire to be holy, we have to take heed in our ways and not offend in our tongues. The words we say. We must be ready to reconcile our quarrels with others, our disagreements, so they won't lead us to greater evils. We must labor to crucify our flesh and mortify our members to make any sacrifice and endure any bodily inconvenience rather than to sin. Because sin, once it's conceived, gives birth to death. The wages of sin is death. See, even if the world does not understand us, we should not be moved. I love this because we are only doing what our Lord Jesus Christ tells us. And truly, we will have no cause to be ashamed. See, the law shows what God will make us one day. And we ought to desire now to become what we will one day, what we shall be. Thank you, Lord, for his word. Let's pray together. Loving Father, I thank you for this time. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit even now would search our hearts. And Father, that we would be broken before you for the anger that is in our heart. Father, we have such heart anger, such heart rage. Father, I pray that you would help us to confess it to you. Father, that we would be broken over our sin. God, that we would not let the sun go down on our sin, that, that we would want to be reconciled to our brothers and sisters. Father, that as we come before you, we would recognize that we need unity among the brothers, among the sisters. Father, that we need to be one even as you and the Father are one. God, that we would be united in that way. 
Father, that it would break our hearts that we have not strived for unity. Father, that it would break our hearts that that our nation is so divided. Father, that it would break our hearts that our churches are so divided. Father, that the enemy is having a heyday with your followers, with your bride. Father, I pray that brokenness, a great repentance, would fall upon your church body. And God, that we would want to be united with you and with our families, with our brothers and sisters, with our children. Father, that we would want to be united with other believers. And God, that we would not give the enemy a foothold in any way, shape, or form. Father, may your grace flow over us. And may we become united in you. Father, I pray this because we serve a mighty Savior in Jesus Christ. And I know, Father, there is nothing that is impossible for you. Guide us, Father, as as we respond to you and to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.